You're listening to Ethics in Education. I'm Carrie Welsh. We're calling this the Plumber episode. Why, you might ask? Here's Harry Brighouse. So imagine you call a plumber. But let's not just imagine it. I actually did call a plumber. Hello? Hey, Dan. This is my friend Daniel. Something like plumbing to me, you know, is so... We're surrounded by it constantly. You know what I mean? Like our whole existence revolves around water. I think that's one of the reasons why plumbing does end up taking such a, you know, five-year apprenticeship. It's it's pretty serious business around here. What do you think of me being hired as a plumber? I guess I have a different perspective on plumbing in the sense that, like, I'm in a fourth year of my apprenticeship, right? So for me... I don't see why you shouldn't be hired on as a plumber if you're willing to learn how to plumb. Do you know what I mean? So why are we talking about plumbing? We're calling this the plumber episode because it's based on a paper that we call the plumber paper. It's a paper that Harry Brickhouse wrote called Becoming a Better College Teacher If You're Lucky. That paper is linked in our show notes and on our website. Let's get back to Harry. Imagine you've called a plumber. And the plumber has just been hired and you discover they've never done any plumbing before. They've never read any books about plumbing, and they've never attended classes about how to plumb. I'm not sure whether plumb is the right verb there. It is. I asked Daniel. Fix pipes, etc. She did grow up in a house with running water, so she, she observed the results of plumbing occasionally. It turns out that when they hired her, the firm didn't even consider how good a plumber she was. They hired her because she was really an expert at baking cakes. And when you investigate further, you discover to your, I think it would be surprise, that the firm, with all its new hires, hires people who are really expert at something that isn't plumbing. So, you know, they hire expert electricians, they hire expert physicists even. They just don't hire expert plumbers. And when you go around and you ask other people what their experience has been of plumbers, they all say, yeah, that's been our experience too. And you discover that, in fact, that's what all the plumbing firms do. They all hire based on these other expertise. And they don't really check the work of the plumbers. And the plumbers don't really... I mean, the, the plumbers get a customer feedback survey that tells them how satisfied or dissatisfied people are, but that comes immediately after they've left and before anybody's even turned on the faucets. That's the analogy. Now imagine being the plumber. Okay, so now you introduce yourself. I'm Harry Brickhouse. I teach in the philosophy department at UW-Madison. I am Grace Gasevich. I am a middle school teacher in Oakland, California, and I am a UW-Madison alumni. And just to model how I get students to introduce themselves in class, name a book that you think you should have read but you haven't. Kindred by Octavia Butler, I think is the one that has been on my mind recently. I have a different question for you. 
a question that I asked my students is if they had to be peanut butter or jelly, which one they would be. Not which one they like better, which one they would be. I guess peanut butter, which is not the one I prefer. Mm. Do you have a reason? Kind of duller, not sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain the plumber analogy? I think that the situation I was in when I started teaching at university was very much the situation of that plumber. That is, I was really expert at something. I was expert at doing philosophy. And that is like an advantage. Like I was going to be teaching philosophy, so it's an advantage. At least I was expert at something that had something to do with the teaching. But I was not an expert at teaching. I hadn't studied teaching. I hadn't been trained. And that's true across the profession. That's true of... Normally, it's true of professors, not only in research universities, but in universities and colleges that are focused on teaching. You would not expect that the plumber in that situation would be a particularly good plumber. And my thought is that we probably are at best considerably less good than we like to think we are at teaching given that we weren't trained to do it we weren't hired for being good at doing it um, we've limited opportunities to develop better skills and actually certainly at research institutions our promotion our pay raises etc don't have much to do with how good we are at teaching they have to do with how good we are at research Is the same true at small liberal arts colleges? At small liberal arts colleges, the professors they hire were trained at the same institutions and in the same ways that the professors at um, research institutions and large public comprehensive universities were trained at. We're all trained in the same places. There are about 100 universities that account for nearly all of the PhD production. And the PhD, most PhDs in a particular discipline are taught pretty similarly to most other PhDs. In the sciences, um, and even some of the social sciences, they don't even get very much practice teaching while they're, I mean, they don't even get very much practice at this thing they're not trained to do um, during their uh, PhD time. And actually, at some, even in the humanities, which tends to be funded through tuition uh, revenues, even in the humanities, at the very elite universities, uh, even in philosophy, they might only spend three years of their time teaching and not doing an awful lot of teaching during that three years of their PhD. So at least at the initial hiring stage, small liberal arts colleges have very limited ability to figure out who the good teachers are and are not. So basically, there's low-quality teaching everywhere. I wouldn't want to commit to that claim. It would just be extremely surprising 
if there were a lot of high-quality teaching. Um, I do think people, I mean, I think people who are attentive and thoughtful and conscientious probably do get better over time and people pick up ideas and you know if you're in the right kind of institution and some small liberal arts colleges for sure are like this you know although people come in without knowing much about teaching they are in an environment where teaching is valued and where ideas are shared and where there's talking about it often not very systematic but you know better some than none it's not as though I think there's no good teaching I think probably, there's probably some really good teaching in some places, but it's not uniform. In the real world, I would be much more confident of your average plumber than I would be of your average teacher, college teacher. So you said something about the incentives also, which is that most college professors are not given pay raises or promoted at all because of the teaching that they do. Do you think that universities should change that incentive structure or do you think that professors should sort of take it upon themselves? Both. So, yeah, absolutely the incentive structure should change. I think it's quite hard to do that. I am not an administrative leader or anything like that. I have ideas about how it would change, but for most of us... In my job, we are not in that world. We're not in that changed world. Once we're in that changed world, of course, we'll behave differently. Nobody likes to be thought of and nobody thinks of them this way, themselves this way. I'm somebody who just follows the incentives, right? It's kind of insulting to people to say, oh, you're just someone who follows the incentives and people don't like to insult themselves that way. No, like we all have some capacity to work around the incentives, especially those of us who have tenure, where you know, we have a lot of freedom actually to decide what we do with our time and how we, how we invest in ourselves and how we invest in the continuing, you know, the development of our own skills. Um, so that's what I was sort of primarily interested in. There were two events that made Harry rethink his role as a professor. In the spring of 2007, someone sent him a chapter of Derek Bach's book, Our Underachieving Colleges. He was impressed with the chapter, so he read the whole book. It's about how we underperform as institutions when it comes to teaching undergraduates. But there's this very particular passage which really embarrassed me, and so I'll read it out to you. Teaching by discussion can also seem forbidding because it makes instructors uncomfortably aware of their shortcomings. Lecturers can delude themselves that their courses are going well, but discussion leaders know when their teaching is failing to rouse students' interest by the indifferent quality of responses and the general torpor of the class. Trying to conduct a discussion with apathetic students is much like giving a bad dinner party. And I suspect Derek Bock had has had a lot of experience of dinner parties, bad and otherwise. Um, I have not. But I rec- the particular thing I recognized in there was the tendency that I had as a teacher to fall back on my own talk. That is, you're in the room, 
Some of the students are prepared, some of them are not prepared, some of them who aren't prepared are nevertheless pretty good at talking, some of them who are prepared are nevertheless not that good at talking. I have not developed the skill at all uh, of structuring the room uh, and what happens in the room so as to bring out all of the good stuff that they can do. Uh, and when things get torporous, again, I'm not sure if that's a, an actual word, but when, when I experience general torpor, my immediate go-to is I can say something interesting and useful now. And I was really vividly aware reading this passage, that's what you, that is I, that's what you do. And I was embarrassed by that. I was embarrassed by a lot of what was in the book. Um, but I was, you know, that was a specific thing that really embarrassed me. And it really made me think, okay, I'm not, I'm somebody who's been coasting by as sort of, people think I'm an okay teacher because I've got the English accent and American students like that. I'm reasonably personable and friendly. I clearly know what I'm talking about when I talk. Um, and that's sort of enough, uh, especially when people, you know, are insulting you by having such low expectations, which is what I think undergraduate students do. Um, so I thought, no, I'd better get better. Even so, I don't think I would have really started changing my behavior, but for the fact that that fall, for the first time, not exactly the first time, but I think for the second time in my career, I taught a class of freshmen. And certainly for the first time, the class was a class of students who had no interest in philosophy. They had been attracted to the class by the topic, which was children, marriage, and the family, not by the fact that it was a philosophy class. In fact, most of the students in it were in it because um, enrolling in my class enabled them to enroll in an ed psych class that they otherwise couldn't have gotten into as freshmen. And, you know, the readings were too hard. There were too many readings. I would go into the classroom, you know, brilliantly prepared. I mean, in some sense, brilliantly prepared. I had loads of interesting things to say, easily 75 minutes worth of interesting stuff to say. Um, but I would go in thinking, well, this will be punctuated by questions and answers the way it is when I teach philosophy majors who are juniors and seniors in these small classes. But they were freshmen and they were basically scared of me. I mean, many of them have said, like, I was intimidated by you. And they found the reading, to say they found it way too hard, I think isn't even the right word. I mean, the, the reading was just completely inappropriate for where they were. Not all of it, but a good deal of it. And so I would talk as if into a void. I mean, I'd stand in front of 20 people and they would just sort of stare at me slightly frightened. And I would just say interest, interesting things that they weren't absorbing and didn't understand. Not at all their fault. You know, I mean, if I'd gone in and spoken in Welsh, not that I can do that, but if I had, you know, they wouldn't have understood that either. And that wouldn't have been their fault either completely my fault and I think it was the first time I had the sort of Derek Bock experience of reading and now I had this experience in the classroom where I really had to face up to the fact that I did not know what I was doing. Something that's strange to me is how 
like culturally normalized it is to have like a Socratic discussion in college or to just have your professor lecture at you and that that is like what people see as college teaching it seems like people think k through 12 is when you have activities that you do and you do a worksheet and all of these things in class and you have projects and and then three months later you're in college and that means that now none of that will happen yeah I mean, I think that's probably a response to reality. You know, I mean, students whose parents went to college experienced something like that. Students whose grandparents went to college, frankly, didn't really experience it because uh, high school was like that too. You know, even, I mean, I think I got pretty good high school teaching, but an awful lot of the high school teaching I got was lecture. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, and in fact, quite a lot of it was dictation. I mean, literally dictation. Somebody would say, okay, you're going to write all this down. And I got very good at dictation. Um, and I think that the expectations of professors are, because they haven't had training in teaching, um, what they tend to do is they tend to do what worked with them. And of course, there's a tremendous selection issue, right? The people who did well in school in the kinds of ways that lead to being a professor are the, kind, are the people who, they really enjoyed lecture. They really enjoyed talking one-on-one -on -one to uh, a professor. They often, frankly, weren't paying much attention to the other students in the classroom when they were doing either of those things. Um, and it worked well for them, they succeeded. And I think a lot of people think, well, whatever worked with me, that's what I'll do, because that works, that'll work with them, um, without understanding the, you know, without thinking through the selection uh, issue. Um, and so you get a sort of self-perpetuation of practices. And people think that's what happens, because that is sort of what happens. Um, and something happened in K-12, I mean, I think through the 50s and 60s. And maybe I'm being unfair to earlier generations of, of K-12 teachers. But through the 50s, 60s and 70s where change happened there that didn't... It's not that it didn't filter through at all to higher education. And if you think about the lab sciences... You know, I mean, in the lab sciences, yeah, there's a lot of lecture, but there are also labs, and labs are, you know, labs are practicing. They're practicing the stuff that you have been learning, so that you actually, or, or practicing the stuff that's been taught you so that you actually learn it. Um, so it's not as though there's nothing like that. But what you've described is, I think, the way people think they, that is what they think will happen, and it is indeed what will happen. It seems like if professors keep teaching like that, it will really hurt some students who maybe don't have enough time or can't go to office hours or need extra support. Uh, maybe specifically like first-year students. Can you speak on that? Yeah. I think of instruction and the quality of instruction as, you know, a really important equity issue. There's a sort of justice question. We both know people who've gone through 
large lecture chemistry classes and large lecture biology classes where they have essentially had professors just talking nonstop at them, sometimes not really saying things that are very relevant to what they're going to be tested on, sometimes indeed saying things that are relevant to what they're going to be tested on, sometimes really being quite hard to understand. Uh, and the students who are going to do better in those classrooms, well, of course, there are, st first of all, students who are better prepared. And someone like UW-Madison, quite rightly, we admit students, we enroll students with quite a diversity of preparation. We should be trying to ensure that all of them succeed uh, and teaching appropriately. The students who have more time, but also students who have parents who went to college and sort of understand this is the way things work, the students whose parents maybe can afford compensatory tutoring and who have time to take that up, they're all going to do better. And that means students who are broadly from more affluent families are going to do better out of this than students who are broadly from less affluent families. If their time is not being wasted in the classroom, that is, if the classroom time is being used in a way that really gets them all to learn, um, that, is, that is good for everybody, but it's especially good for people who don't have the resources to compensate for what happens when things go bad. That freshman class that I taught, which wasn't a complete disaster, but frankly it was something of a disaster, it's not really enough just to know that you're... I mean, if I tell you you're doing something wrong, that's helpful, but unless you have some way of learning how to do it better, you're still kind of stuck. And so what I had to do was figure out how to do it better. I didn't have a vast array of resources for doing that. That class was in 2007, and then in 2010, I taught it again. Um, and, and, you know, you know this, your sister was in it in 2010. And one of the students from the 2007 class, who I'd been talking with, you know, throughout, ever since 2007, and I, we'd talked a lot, actually, about teaching and her experience as a student. Um, she was in the nursing program, and I was sort of very interested in her experience, especially the clinical side of the, the training she was getting. In, I think, July, before the class began in 2010, she said, is there anything I can do to help with that class? And I knew immediately what I wanted to do. I thought, yeah, I would like you to come to every other class session and sit there and watch me. And I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong. I mean, that was basically what I said to her. I mean, I got that idea from reading a book about K-12 teaching um, by a guy called Tony Wagner, who's at the ed school at Harvard, and it was something that he had sort of facilitated in, in high schools, between teachers, not, not with students observing. Uh, and so I got Emma to do that two years in a row. It's not as though she had suggestions that, oh, right, now, you know, my whole syllabus is going to change, or my whole behavior is going to change, but she had sort of and frankly, if they had been like that, I don't think I would have been able to act on them. But she had daily observations about how, you know, things I wasn't doing well or that I could do better. So I'll just, you know, really trivial examples. 
I think at the end of the third week, she said to me, you don't, it's the end of the third week and you don't know all their names. There are only 20 of them. You should know they're all their names by now. And I tell you what, I've always, in a class that size, known everybody's name by the, by the end of the second week um, since then. This was funny. One, she would only come once a week. And so she'd come, I think, on the Tuesday. Uh, and so I think in the, again, you know, third or fourth week, she said, you know, the material's really challenging for them. It's good that it's challenging for them. And the things you say are challenging. But I think every 10, 15 minutes, you need to just sum up where the class is to keep them all on board. And so the next class session, the Thursday, I did that pretty religiously. And then the subsequent session, the Tuesday, I totally forgot, and I didn't. And we went and sat down outside her and Emma said, well, you didn't do what I told you to do last week. And that was really good, because I, then I knew, okay, she's really going to hold me accountable. I mean, I was embarrassed, but she's really going to hold me accountable. And from then on, I, I did do that. It's not as though it had to be her to make that, to create that idea, but it hadn't occurred to me. And I'm not sure, I, even if it had, I would have had the confidence to do it if she hadn't been pushing me. A few years later, the dean set up a committee basically to figure out how to spend an amount of money that had been donated just to improve teaching. And one of the ideas that this committee, which I was on, one of the ideas we came up with was to have, to institutionalize the kind of role that Emma played in a way. And so the way we did that was we set up this class, which is quite small. There are, you know, never more than 15 students in it, which is taught in the fall, uh, where, which is a kind of training. And then in the spring, and, you know, COVID has, has sort of put this on hold, really. But then they work with professors who volunteer, do, playing roughly the role that Emma played for me. And of course, it's the professors are volunteering. I don't think this would be a good experience for a student if you put them with a professor who didn't want that. So it's only professors who want that. But even professors who want that, like people like me can want to be a really good teacher and recognize that they're not. And so I took this class, and when I did it, you were the teacher, and some of us were majoring in philosophy there was someone majoring in biochemistry history spanish pre-dental and we observed chemistry teachers we observed video of professors at different universities that are easy to find on the internet and we observed old video of you how bad was i i think what we all quickly realized when we were watching that in the class is that all the students were just talking to you and none of them were really talking to each other. And it was an interesting conversation. The material was interesting, but it didn't seem like anyone was talking. It didn't seem like any of the students were in conversation with each other, despite, and you were attempting to facilitate a discussion. I was attempting to. And I didn't have the skills to do it. And I was doing things, I mean, and this is a great thing about seeing, seeing yourself in action. And obviously, like every great athlete, I mean, every athlete, every professional athlete watches themselves, right? Every actor watches themselves. 
because they want to see how they want to see what they're doing wrong they want to see how to improve and it was very clear to me watching that video what I was doing wrong more than anything else I was interrupting all the time and I was interrupting in this very well-willed way to give affirmation to the student the student says something says something interesting they say it to me because they're looking at me and I reward that by responding to them and that's a that makes discussion impossible that's a killer right they can't be looking at me if you're going to have a discussion if they're going to be learning from each other they have to be talking to one another and it's just you know if you're at a dinner party to go back to Derek Box dinner party you know if you're at a dinner party and there's somebody at the table who every time anybody says anything they respond that's that's going to be a disaster of a dinner party. Nobody's going to be learning from each other. And what I was doing was fulfilling their expectation, which is the expectation that I am the center of their learning, rather than the material, the content, and the skills being at the center of their learning. And if you see things that way, the kinds of things that we try to get people to learn how to do in philosophy, but also the kinds of things people try to learn, uh, get people to learn how to do in history or in English, and frankly in biology, in, in physics, um, requires interaction between the students themselves. One reason for that is that if they're doing that, they feel accountable to each other and they feel accountable among other things for being prepared and if they feel accountable for being prepared they're prepared and the preparation is where a lot of learning happens and if you create the right kind of classroom environment then the learning that's happened in preparation is compounded by learning in the classroom. Something that I've heard some K-12 teachers say is that Instead of having ping pong, you say this in, in the paper, instead of having ping pong, teacher, student, teacher, student, you want volleyball, which is student, 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 teacher, student, 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 teacher. Yeah. So the rule I now have for myself is I almost never will speak, except to call on people, until at least four students have spoken. So yes, student, 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 teacher. And if things go well, I don't even speak then, you know. It's hard to change. And when you've been doing something for a long time, and like you were saying before, you're nice, you're also teaching in the Midwest, no one's going to say anything to you. They'll thank you at the end of the class, no matter what you do. And I'm wondering about those professors that might need more of a push. I've got to be honest, though. I mean, if people are really resistant to it, they're going to be really resistant to it. All the incentives allow them to be. If you're an administrator and you're trying to think of a strategy for improving teaching and learning systematically, you know, you have to make a decision about whether you want to just ignore those people, which I think is probably what you should do at the beginning, um, or whether you want to find ways of just making it ever harder for them to resist. But I don't think they're going to read this essay and be very moved by it. I've got a question for you. 
you would very often come to my office and talk to me about a class you were in and talk about the teaching. And it was really interesting for me because I would hear these things about what was going on in the classroom. But I felt kind of bad for you because you were thinking about the teaching more than you should be. It was distracting you from thinking about, you know, from doing your own learning. Do you feel that that was a sort of disability? In a way, I think that I was so distracted by it that I couldn't pay attention to the material or would kind of get hot-headed and, like, frustrated with the teacher. But I think that most students have experienced really bad teaching. A lot of people feel very distracted by the teaching or the lack of teaching. I think I complained about it more. Good. So I think that's good. I agree with you, and I agree with you because I, I hear from students all the time about the teaching they get, and it's not... Lots of students get lots of good teaching, but most students get some bad teaching, and some students get quite a lot of bad teaching. And when they, com when they describe things that have happened, I say things like, well, if, you, if that happened in a restaurant, would you complain? Yeah. And, have you, and did you complain? No. And I kind of understand why they don't. But it's very hard. It, it's sort of unfair to people to just... I mean, it's unfair to somebody to have them do things badly and then never point out that they haven't done, you know, that they've done them badly. You can't expect that they're going to improve. There's also this strange dynamic where at large universities, if you, you come at large universities in your freshman and sophomore year, you're taking classes that are 100, 200, 300, 400 people. And those lectures are very hard to teach well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then by the time you're a junior, you get one class that's 20 people and you're like, this is the best thing ever because we can talk to each other. And then even if the teaching is suboptimal, you still think it's better yeah. than what it was. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. So what you're saying is that because bad teaching in large lectures is so obvious, bad teaching in small classes is much less obvious. Yeah. I think we are duck to some extent with a large lecture. I think that a lot of our, you know, a lot of interventions should be directed at making smallish improvements. And for sure, when you're trying to work on things yourself, you should be looking for small improvements. Why did you decide to become a teacher? I think there are all these things about it that are confusing to me. Like, I don't really understand still how you say something and then another person understands it. And then, and that's interesting to me. Um, that sounds, that sounds so like silly, I think, but it, I don't know. That's interesting to me. And I think that because of the education I had, I was really well prepared to be a teacher, even though I didn't do anything related to education. Well, you did do things related to education. 
Even though you weren't in a teacher ed program. Yeah, and I wasn't regularly practicing teaching. Yeah. I think that I was well prepared for it. Like, I think about what you said in the paper that, like, I'm nice and I am calm and I'm good at explaining things to people. And people think that that means that you'll automatically be a good teacher. But it's a lot of work. Like, you have, you really have to practice a lot in order to be good at it. And I think that that was something that was interesting to me, too, about it, that it requires a lot of discipline and practice. I think the thing that I'm most embarrassed about is how long, as a teacher, I did not understand that in order to teach well, you had to really understand the individual people who you were trying to get to learn. Yeah. And I don't, you know, my focus as a teacher was on, yeah, sure, what I wanted them to learn. I did, I, it's not like, it, it wasn't totally on the content. I did have this sort of vision of what I wanted them to learn, but I didn't have an understanding that, you know, you can't just throw your pearls of wisdom or whatever around. You have to understand the, the individual people who are in the room so that they can understand what you're saying. That, that's a different kind of work, and that's the kind of work that I don't think I was ever prepared for at all. And I think that's the kind of work that you, all the time I've known you, which is like a long time now, that's the kind of work that you are well prepared for. You know, because I, I see how you think about other people and try to get to know them. So I don't think the comment you made about saying things and having other people understand them is silly at all. I think that's a much bigger challenge than we like to think. I think the other reason that I became a teacher, wanted to become a teacher, was because I just think it's so interesting to sit in a room with people and see what people do and watch what unfolds. And yeah, maybe like the same thing that you're saying, like my sophomore or my junior year of college, I became really interested in figuring out like, oh, I should go sit next to this person, yeah. which I think was bad because I think that I put pressure on myself to help the classes go well. And maybe I'm also giving myself more credit, but I was like, this person hasn't talked much. Maybe I should go and sit next to them. And I think that that is helpful to me now to understand how instrumental strong community or strong relationships and belonging is to classes really going well. I've been in a lot of classes where I don't know everyone's names and it makes such a big difference to the classes being interesting and engaging and me wanting to go to them. Yeah, people say that all the time and it is such a bizarre bit of magic that it can make such a difference, but it clearly does make a huge difference. And one thing that name learning does is it means they're more likely to know each other and they're more likely to be able to talk outside of class about the stuff that you want them to talk about. I now pretty regularly quiz students on each other's names. It's really funny. It is funny. It feels awful, though, I will say, because you're like, oh, my God. I can't remember this person's name. I've been sitting in a class with them for a week. But I think that's also a really good strategy. Even though we're all 18 to 
however old, most of us are not going to go out of our way to learn everyone's names if we're not told to. So while college students are independent and whatever, you have to hold their hand a little bit. Like you have to have, you have to make everyone learn each other's names. Yeah, no, I, I, I really, I really like doing it. People are pretty goodwilled about it. And nobody minds if you, like, you might feel awful, but nobody minds that you don't know their name because their expectation coming into their class was that nobody, including me, was ever going to know their name. Yeah. So that anybody knows it is sort of impressive for them. Next time I do the quiz, I will say that. I will say that to make people feel more at ease. But I think, again, that's why having someone to watch your teaching is so helpful because... As a teacher, you're thinking about the content, you're thinking about everyone in the room, you're thinking about yourself. And you're, you're, there's just a lot that you have to keep track of where it's easy to let something kind of slide yeah. and someone else will see it. And so that's why it's just so helpful. It sounds like you wouldn't just hire me to do plumbing at your house right now. I mean, no, <laughs> definitely not. How did you become a better plumber? I think with anything, well, having a good like journey worker to work under is is huge. You know, having a having a good teacher or a good person to learn from makes all the difference in the world. You know, so so that's how I feel like. I have improved is that I've had some really good instructors, not just in the classroom, but then also in the field. Thanks for listening. And special thanks to Grace Gusevich, Harry Brickhouse, and Daniel Munoz. This piece was produced by me, Carrie Welsh, with editorial help from Anna Nelson, Hannah Bounds, Trinity Giese, and Harry Brickhouse. <laughs>